And it looks... <laughs> yeah, we are quiet this morning. Don't worry, but please don't be quiet. Uh, you can talk, you can chat. That's great. That's great. Uh, a couple of people have mentioned that I do look a little bit different. Uh, you've probably noticed I look a little bit different. I, I, I've got rid of my, my beard. There you go. Rebecca's just been like, oh, that's what it was. That's what it was. I thought it, I thought it was a haircut. It, it, it was my anniversary present to Steph. <laughs> uh, no, we, we celebrated 22 years of marriage on Friday, which is great. You, you shouldn't be applauding me. You need to direct all that applause to Steph, really. Uh, uh, she, she deserves that applause. That'll be, that'll be absolutely for putting up with me for 22 years. That'll be fantastic. Uh, hope here's the 22 more uh, in, in my books, but that'll be, that'll be absolutely great. We're going to continue our uh, One Another series. We've been looking at these one another statements that turn up in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, as we've been discussing, love to use this term, one another or each other. And they do so because they, they understand that Jesus as chosen community hasn't he one anothering to be the expression of who he is in the world to the world? That it's only through one anothering that we can actually express anything of Jesus Christ. And I said this in the very first week, but I can't express Jesus on my own. I can't. I can't do it. You can't do it. And it's not just that if, it was, if Jesus only looks like me, then that's terrible anyway. Jesus hopefully looks a lot better than me as in who he is. But it's actually in our interactions that anything of what Christ is like is shown. And so the New Testament writers used to use this one another term to express this community life. And one of the New Testament writers, one of the most prolific, a guy called Paul, the Apostle Paul, he used this great illustration of this one another life. He used this image of a body. And for Paul, we were a body. And not just any body, but we together were the body of Christ. In the first week of this series, we looked at Romans 12, where Paul used that image. And today we're going to turn to another 12. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you have your Bible with you. And we're going to look at another great passage where Paul really puts on the accelerator. He puts his foot on the accelerator with this powerful image. And we're going to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, because I want to look at uh, the principle of don't snub one another. Don't snub one another. Now, admittedly, unlike any other title in this series, uh, you're not going to find a verse where one of the New Testament writers says, don't snub one another. You're not going to find that verse. But I hope that as we read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and we're going to read a little bit into 13 as well, I hope that you'll see that they'll make a good summary of the point that Paul is making. So have you got your Bibles with you? 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to read from verse 12. And we're going to read into, into chapter 13 as well. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Paul writes this. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. And so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free. But we have all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit, and we all have received the same spirit, or your translation might have. We all have been given the one spirit to drink. And yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does make, not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm only an ear, and not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? Suppose the whole body were only just an eye, then how would you hear? 
Or if your whole body were just one big ear, then how would you smell anything? But God made our bodies with many parts, but he has put each part just where he wants it. What a strange thing the body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. He keeps saying that, doesn't he? You notice that? The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts that seem weak and least important are really the most necessary. And the parts we regard less honorable are are those that we clothe with the greatest care. And so we carefully protect from the eyes of others those parts that should not be seen, while other parts do not require a special care. And so God has put the body together in such a way that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. And this makes for harmony among its members, so that all the members care for one another equally. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Now all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Here is a list of some of the members that God has placed in the body of Christ. First are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who get others to work together, those who speak in unknown languages. Is everyone an apostle? Of course not. Is everyone a prophet? No. Are all teachers? Does everyone have the gift of healing? Of course not. Does God give us all the ability to speak in unknown languages? Can everyone interpret unknown languages? No. And in any event, you should desire the most helpful gifts. First, however, however, let me tell you about something else that is better than all of them. If I could speak in a language, in any language in heaven and earth, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew how all the mysteries of the future, and knew everything there was about everything, but didn't love others, what good would I be? And if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, without love I would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would be of no value whatsoever. It's a great passage, isn't it? Great passage. Just to focus in on, Paul repeats himself quite a lot in that passage, making the same point. But in verse 27 of chapter 12, now all of you together, I'm purposely putting the emphasis here, are Christ's body, and each of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Let's just pray before we continue. Lord God, I thank you that we have time just to in this time that is about to pass, that we have time just to explore your scriptures, your, your voice to us, Lord God. And I pray that you, as we do, I pray you open up our hearts and our minds. Help us to listen, help us to understand, help us to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. Help us to listen to you and your heart and your intent for us, for our life together. Lord God, we want to be all that you long for us to be. We want to be a people that embodies you and expresses you and shows what you are like to this world and to each other. And so help us open up our minds to hear what you're saying and help us to live it out in your power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Not so long ago, possibly only about three or four years ago, I I was quite an open-minded person. 
I didn't have many preferences and I didn't have many prejudices. And yet, despite my best efforts, I must confess to you, and please go easy on me this morning, I must confess to you that I am now a coffee snob. I never used to be a coffee snob, but I am now a coffee snob. And I am horrified at what I have become. I am seriously horrified. It used to be I could, I could happily drink any coffee. It used to taste all the same to me. It didn't matter whether it was Maxwell House or Starbucks or whether it was instant or whether it was ground or whether it was filtered. As far as I'm concerned, all coffee was coffee. Anyone hold that opinion? No, <laughs> a few blunt nose then. Mm. I, I didn't even care about the differences and distinctions about coffee. I didn't care if it was cappuccino or macchiato or americano. I didn't even understand what those terms were. I used to be one of those people who'd go into a coffee shop and I'd be paralyzed and confused by this list of coffees listed on the back. I was one of those people who would say, all I want is a coffee, as if all that exists is a coffee. I used to believe all coffee was equal. But I've now come to realize, to re-quote and to paraphrase something George Orwell said, all coffee is equal, but some coffee is more equal than others. Now, and I'm joking, you know I'm joking, but the truth is I am a coffee snob, uh, and some of us don't like that term. We don't, I, I, you know, those who are shaking our heads, we don't like the term snob. Some of us prefer to say that we are coffee connoisseurs. We are specialists. We have fine tastes. We have acquired a fine taste. Uh, but as one self-proclaimed coffee snob website put it, they said it like this, a coffee snob or a coffee connoisseur, whichever term you prefer, is someone who cares deeply, who cares deeply about what kind of coffee they put in their mouth. They care deeply. I love those words. We care deeply. That's why it's important to us. It matters to us. Now, maybe we could rephrase that as we have convictions. Maybe that's another word. We have convictions. Or better still, we could say that we have preferences. Now, of course, I'm, I'm talking about something I was going to say unimportant like coffee, but that wouldn't be true for a coffee snob like me. Uh, but something humorous like coffee to talk about something a bit more serious and a bit more important. Because there's nothing wrong with being a connoisseur, is there? There's nothing wrong with being a connoisseur. There's nothing wrong with occurring deeply about things. We all have preferences. Every single one of us have things that we care about. It's part of who we are. It's part of what makes us who we are. In a way, whether you like it or not, we are all snobs. You can hold your hand up to high and say, I am a snob. Because you will be. In some part of your life, you will be a snob. There will be something you care deeply about. The problem, the problem though, or the problem start is when our preferences, when our convictions produce snobbish behavior. That's the problem, isn't it? When we get snobbish. Now, because there's nothing wrong with being a connoisseur, but when you believe that your specialism or your preference makes you part of an elite, or that you're now unequal at others, or that you are better than others, well, that's when the problems kick in. There's nothing wrong with caring deeply about things and having a conviction. But sadly, sadly, sometimes caring deeply about things also can cause us to be uncaring and insensitive and critical, and harsh towards others, more so when, we are when we're critical and uncaring towards those other people who don't care deeply about what we care deeply about. And we've all been there on one side of that equation. See, being snobs can cause us wrongly to snub. And I don't know if you know what the word snub means, but it means to ignore people 
or to disdain them or to mistreat them or push them to the side, to look down on others, to, to this failing to see and appreciate the value and contrib- contribution of the other, believing that the other is not necessary to us. Now, in what we've just read, Paul says the church is full of connoisseurs, if you want to put it that way. Paul says the church is full of connoisseurs, that God, according to Paul, has filled the church with different specialities, different abilities, different spiritual gifts, different temperaments. But it's not just about gifts, as Paul has already said in this letter, before this chapter, and in other letters, Then the Messiah's people themselves are made up from people who are also different, people who come from different walks of life. And so like our physical bodies, the body of Christ has this intentional and beautiful gift of diversity and distinction. This intentional and beautiful gift of diversity and distinction. We are all different. Look around the room. You're all different. None of you look like me, you're probably thankful of. None of you are like me. I'm not like you. We're all shaped from a different, vast array of circumstances. We all have different strengths and different weaknesses. We all have different backgrounds from from different cultures, different experiences, different perspectives. The church, thank God, is not one-dimensional, is it? Thank God. I say thank God. I think some of us would like it if it was one-dimensional. But thank God it's not. And it's not all just one color and it's not all just one sound. It is different and it is beautiful because of that. The church gives us, if you want it this way, the church gives us the gift of the other. The other that is different from me. And yet that gift of the other is the gift that every generation of church has always, always struggled with. Because we're not comfortable with the other. Some people say that the hardest spiritual disciplines for Christians is prayer. Some people say the hardest discipline is fasting Some people say the hardest discipline is reading the scriptures or living holy lives. And whilst all of those are important and they are a challenge, they're not the hardest. The hardest discipline is being a body. The hardest discipline is being a body. It's being together with people who are not on the same page as us. True or false? See, it's a challenge. It's a challenge today. And it will always be a challenge. It was a challenge back in Paul's generation too. Not just with the Corinthians, but every church Paul writes to. It was a challenge. It was a challenge for Jesus' disciples. And whatever church comes after us, it will be a challenge for them too. Because we are always different. Now when Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he's writing it because they purposely divided themselves from one another. They've split off. The church in Corinth has found themselves in contentious factions with differing preferences. Preferences for certain people, certain ideas, certain spiritual gifts, even certain teachers. Just like today, we all have our preferences. There's a reason I don't put on the rotor who's preaching from week in, week out. Because we all have our preferences. We do. We all have our preferences. It's still the same today. And also like today, the reason these ideas existed in the church in Corinth is because they existed in the surrounding culture. Church doesn't exist in a vacuum. We bring who we are into church. We bring where we're from into church. And so in Corinth, 
there was these big ideas, Roman and Greek ideas. And one of those ideas that existed in Corinth was that the weak should be ruled by the strong. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The unsophisticated should be ruled by the sophisticated. The ignorant should be ruled by the wise. And so in turn, this produces this hierarchy. This ideas of who should be honored and who should not be honored. Who had freedom and who would not have freedom. Who was indispensable and necessary and who was not. Or in other words, who should rule and who should be ruled. And these ideas influenced the church. They still do. And so it's no accident. It's no accident in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians that Paul spends so much time disrupting hierarchy and disrupting this fragmentation by emphasizing that we all belong to Christ. All of us. And repeatedly through this letter, he keeps hitting that. Even through the letter we've just read, the part of the letter we've just read, he hits the same point again and again and again. He repeats himself. And he insists every time that every single member of the body is just as indispensable, just as necessary, just as important as any other member of the body. And he's doing it because there's cultural and there's social and there's spiritual snobbery within the church at Corinth. People were getting snubbed. Paul writes, doesn't he, in the chapter we just read in verse 25, he encourages them to care about each other equally. He has to write that because they're not. They're not. In their minds, some people are more worthy of care than other people. So there's mistreatment to the weak and the poor. In the church in Corinth, there's tensions between Jews and Greeks and Romans. The Christians of status, who had status in the Corinthian society, were trying to lord it over those without status in the church. Especially when those without status tried to claim their equality in Jesus Christ. Some people feasted, as Peter reminded us last week when we came together, while some people starved because they didn't wait on one another. And regards to theology and their favorite ideas and the things they wanted to emphasize on, there were differences all over the place. And so when they met together, when you read this letter to the Corinthians, when they met together, you get this impression that there's just noise and there's chaos and people shouting over the top of one another all the time. I suppose you could look at it like this way, that the Corinthians had their convictions and their specialisms, which isn't a problem. That's not a problem, but it led some of them to think they were better than others. And as such, it led them to try and curate and customize the community of the church in their own image. They tried to dissect the body, tried to fragment it up, trying to create bubbles, trying to create cliques, trying to push out the other's people, the gift of others. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no part can say to the other parts, I don't need you. We need each other. We need each other. There might be someone in this room you look at it thinking about, thinking, I don't need them. No, you need each other. And when we split the church, when we dissect it, well, it stops looking like Jesus. It does. As Paul uses this comical image, and it's purposely comical, uh, that when you think about when they all join together, he's saying it won't look like an organism. Instead, it just looks like one giant ear. And what use is one giant ear or one giant eye? It's pointless. Now, it could be, it could be that the Corinthians didn't see there was a problem with this. 
It could be they'd have thought it was all right. Maybe just like in our times, maybe they just saw church as an event, something that they attend, something they just turn up. And so as long as, you know, as long as they kind of, it's entertaining and the music is good and the preacher's inspirational, great. But as far as Paul's concerned, that fails. To kind of rephrase what he says at the beginning of chapter 13, you can have a great preacher, you can have awesome worship, you can make awesome sounds, you can have miraculous things going on in your meetings, but if there's no genuine desire to connect to one another, if all you're trying to do is avoid one another, then it's meaningless, and it's of no value whatsoever, and it is useless. It's useless. See, the church in Corinth was a great church, depending on how you want to measure it. If you want to measure it in a sense of how excellent the preaching was and the worship was and the spiritual gifts, then they were big thumbs up. They had spiritual gifts. But actually, they weren't following the leading of the Holy Spirit. They spoke eloquently. I can't even say the word. They could say the word. I couldn't. They spoke well and really entertaining and they had knowledge and they had miracles, but they failed to love one another. And they failed because you cannot love one another if there is not an other to love. I know that sounds like a really cliche thing to say, but it's true, isn't it? And when I say another, I don't mean another person. I mean someone who's not like you. It's easy to love people just like you. It's hard to struggle to love another. And yet for Paul... If there's a togetherness, if there's a togetherness that bridges all this diversity and distinction, then that's when Jesus is suddenly embodied in the church. Now, admittedly, there's there's a number of places we could go with this this morning. We could apply the lessons in Corinth to it in a number of ways. We, we could talk about consumerism. We could talk about prejudice. We could talk about hierarchies and power plays. We could talk about this idea, this wrong idea that church is a place and not a people. And some of that stuff we've already covered previously in the series of one another. But I just want to focus in on one aspect, if that's all right. Just one aspect, one modern equivalent of this Corinthian problem that does affect the church today. All right, and that's echo chambers. Echo chambers. Now, you might not be used to the term echo chamber, but I'm sure you all know what an echo is. You've all stood in a cave or in a tunnel, and you've shouted only to hear your own voice repeated back to you multiple times. And that's the same thing socially. That is an echo chamber, because generally, most people only listen to people they already agree with. We do, don't we? There's that old phrase, isn't it? Birds of a feather flock together. We generally have a tendency to listen to people we already agree with. We don't cope well with hearing perspectives and experiences from other people that are different from ours. And so we curate, like the Corinthians, we curate and customize environments that will echo and amplify and reinforce our existing views. That's an echo chamber. And humanity's done this for years. We've done it for centuries. The Corinthians were doing it. But it has, I must admit, it has intensified with social media. And so if you have Twitter or YouTube or Facebook, then you can like, hide, mute, block, and share any voices you like at your choose. And when you start doing that, eventually the algorithms, the programming of those softwares, those meters, they will do the rest and eventually they'll only start repeating back to you the same things you already think. 
Now, I want to be clear. Social media is not to blame. Social media is a good thing. It's not to blame. We did it well before social media. We did it with the books that we read. We did it with the newspapers we bought. We did it with the radio and TV shows we watched. We did it with the people that we chose to mix with and the people we chose to snub. And so like the Corinthians, we bring our culture into church. And so Christians too have echo chambers. We have loads of them. Far, 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 probably more than any other group, I think. And again, social media is not the problem, but if you spend any time on social media, echo chambers are all over the place, Christian echo chambers. And you can tell, because the amount of hate and disdain and snubbing that there is between different Christian echo chambers online is absolutely heartbreaking. The factions, the venomous tones, the lack of curing for one another, the lack of respect, the ability to see one another as part of the body of Christ. We snub, and I must be honest when I say this, we snub as Christians, and I'm not necessarily saying anybody here, but online we snub and slaughter each other all the time before the watching world. And it's horrifying. If you're on social media, you might have seen it. And that's not a great witness to the body of Christ, is it? Jesus said, you'll know my disciples because they love one another. And yet the amount of hate there is between Christian voices online doesn't look like the body of Christ. And it certainly doesn't paint a healthy, invitational picture of a community that says, come and be a part of this. Now there's problems with echo chambers and Christian echo chambers, and they're unhealthy for many reasons, but just the three very quick, basic reasons. If if you're used to an echo chamber, then you'll never learn from anyone else who sees the world from a different perspective. That doesn't mean you have to agree. Let's put that in there. doesn't mean you have to agree. But listening and understanding is essential if you want to grow and mature. You cannot develop humility and empathy if you do not listen to others. You can't. Secondly, it's a problem in echo chambers, a problem because the, you become more prone to seeing people you disagree with as your enemies and your opponents all the time. You'll enter into arguments and not conversation. And this ter- in turn, that will t- changes how you treat people. It changes how you talk to people. And so hate and suspicion, demonization, prejudice, stereotypes, bigotry, they thrive in echo chambers. They absolutely thrive. And thirdly, it damages our ability to embody Jesus Christ and to witness about him. Now, we could spend ages talking about those things. But just the third one, briefly, is a biggie. It's huge. Because if my Christianity, if my Christianity is based on an echo chamber, if all I do is surround myself with voices that echo my own thinking, and if I ignore the gift of others then God no longer becomes holy, holy, holy. Instead, God starts to look like me, myself, and I. Does that make sense? This isn't in my notes. But I didn't get saved because of my echo chamber. The truth of the gospel had to break through my echo chamber. If it didn't break through my echo chamber then the ideas of kind of forgiveness and repentance, I I suppose surrendering to God, well, I wouldn't have needed to. Because I already had an image of God. 
And that image was that God didn't exist. And if I surrounded myself with the constant of that voice, I would never have heard the truth of the gospel. Do you understand? But it's the same with as we grow and as we mature. See, I need the contributions of others if I'm to avoid me-shape Christianity. I don't want Christianity. I don't want a God that looks like Tristan. That's bad news. That's bad news. I need the contributions of Steph. I need the contributions of Agnes. I need the contributions of Michael. I need the contributions of Mama Helena. I need that if it's to avoid a God that just looks like me and is shaped by my preferences and my wants and my desires. And suddenly God stops being a God and he starts being an idol. So I have to ask, in your own life, where is the gift of the other? Or is it just you and what you think? Where is the gift of the other? Now, I have to add here, there might be those of us who say, well, I've had the gift of the other. I used to think like this, but then I started listening to so-and-so, and and I've changed my opinion on that. I've now moved to this. But okay, but you're missing my point. Are you still listening to others, or have you just jumped from one echo chamber to another echo chamber, and then looking to jump to another one? Because that's not the body of Christ. So where is the gift of the others? So I have to ask you, and it's a challenging thing. It's not easy. I appreciate But when you read stuff online or when you read books, are you just reading the same person or the same school of thought? Do you just watch the same preacher or preachers just like them on YouTube or God TV or UCB? Do you listen to Christians different than you? Because that's a challenge, isn't it? If you're young, who are the older people you're listening to? Because if you are young... To pop an illusion that exists, you need more than your peers to walk through life. You need the voices of those older than you. And if you're older, then who are the younger voices you're listening to? If you're into your modern church preaching, great, that's fine, that's good. There's a lot of good stuff out there. But are you also looking at the ancient stuff and the older stuff? Or have you just snubbed it? Because you think it's not relevant anymore. Because this stuff that was written in the 8th century, I know that I've read this past year, that has blown my mind about how relevant it still is. Charles Spurgeon, still a great preacher. He's not preaching today, but his sermons still challenge me. So have you snubbed the older stuff? If you're white or British or male, then where are the non-white, the non-British, the non-male voices, the female voices in your world? Where's the voice of the other, if you're conservative or liberal or evangelical or orthodox, then where are the other voices from outside of your bubble? I'm not saying you have to agree, but where are the other voices? And when I say, where well, you're listening to those voices, I'm not, I'm not about listening with an intent to criticize, because anyone can do that. You might be doing it right now, but anyone can do that. I'm not asking you to listen to what you disagree with or where you disagree, although that's a wise thing to do as well. But are you listening to understand? Are you listening to see where you may be wrong? Are you listening to see where you could be right? Because if I never listened to where I may be wrong, I would never have become Christian. So to put it another way, when was the last time you listened to something that challenged you and not just something that confirmed the way you currently think? When was the last time you encountered the other? Mark Twain, uh, that famous writer, who wrote Huckleberry Finn or The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. 
Mark Twain, the famous American writer, he once wrote that travel, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. I like that quote. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And Twain was talking about, because he was a well-traveled guy, about how going to other places, encountering other people, spending time with them, other cultures that weren't American cultures, he had this wonderful way of dismantling all his prejudices and all his echo chambers. The beautiful thing about the church is we don't need to travel in that way. The church is full of connoisseurs. It's full of connoisseurs. It gives us the gift of others. Even in our room today, and we're missing three quarters of us today, even in our room today, we are all different and we are full of the gift of the other. And our task is to function together as we've already said in part of the series, encourage one another, submit to one another, correct one another, help one another, pray for one another, and it's not pulling each other apart, but building one another up. Now this doesn't mean, because I know there's a lot of questions, there's probably loads of questions, I don't want to listen to them because they're wrong. You're right. I'm not saying everybody is right and no one's wrong. I'm not saying there are no wrong or right perspectives. I'm not saying that every perspective is equally valid. I'm not saying that. But you still need to listen and understand, especially if you want to engage in that perspective. But it also doesn't mean that just because someone is wrong in one part of their theology, that they're therefore wrong everywhere else. Does it? (laughs) I wasn't expecting many yeses to that, I must admit. But it doesn't. Just because someone is wrong somewhere doesn't mean they're wrong everywhere else. And even when we are wrong or they are wrong, it does not permit us to be unkind snobbish or cruel. It does not permit us to snub. It does not permit us to get out of the fact that we are to care for one another equally and we're to value the necessity of one another. There is something I've got to learn from you. And there's something you've got to learn from me. I can't say I don't need you. We are all together the body of Christ. Does that make sense? And whenever we forget this, then we need to remember that we're not baptized into our echo chambers. We are baptized into Christ. In a book called Spirituality According to Paul, which is an excellent book, highly recommend it. Uh, I picked it up this past week for, uh, you know, when you pick up a book for 10 minutes just to look for a quote and you end up spending two hours in it because you forgot how good a book it is. If you're a bookish person, that might make sense. Uh, but in his book, Spiritually According to Paul, a theologian and a pastor called Rodney Reeves, he makes the point, he makes the point that whenever in the New Testament, whenever Paul brings up baptism, whenever Paul brings up baptism in every case but one, he does it because he's trying to get his converts to learn how to get on with one another. Every case but one, whenever Paul brings about baptism, he's doing it because he's trying to get his converts to be a body, to be a community. And one of those occasions is one of these occasions in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, where Paul says, we've all been baptized into Christ's body, all given the one spirit to drink. And one of the reasons Paul does this, and there's a number of reasons, but one of the reasons he does this is because as someone once said, death is the great equalizer. Death is the great equalizer. And when we talk about baptism, often we talk about this as as the water grave. We are buried with Christ. Death is the great equalizer. So no matter who you were in the world, 
No matter how great you thought you were, no matter what status have you got, no matter what you've achieved, whatever your accolades are, whatever's written on your CV, whatever your specialisms, no matter who, they all end at death. We're all equal at death. No one's better than anybody else at death. Or to phrase it as Jesus once said, the last become first and the first become last. There's no great and there's no little. But as Rodney Rees points out, but for those who've been buried with Christ in baptism, the grave has already been visited. The great equalizer has already happened. So before baptism, the Corinthians saw themselves as either Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. But afterwards, those identities were meant to mean nothing. And they were supposed to see themselves as one people. Equal. Still with distinctions, still with specialisms, but equal. No hierarchy. And it's the same for us. We're equal. I know I pastored a church. I'm still trying to figure out what that means. I know I teach, but I'm certainly not better than anybody else here. There are people who have gifts of worship and they sing well and they play well. It's great to have Janet on the piano this morning. It's great. But it doesn't mean they're better than anybody else. There's people who, who, who head up works like Trust House and things like that and the homework club and who, 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 you know, you do a great, tremendous job, but it doesn't mean they are better. None of us are better than any one else here. We're all connoisseurs, but we're all equal. But are we trying to divide the body of Christ into pieces? And are we clinging to our preferences and our echoes and our individuality more than our corporate identity in Jesus Christ? Are we snubbing one another? Again, it's a challenge to be together. It's the greatest spiritual challenge there is for Christians. But it seems, when I read the New Testament, and when all these writers use this one another and each other, when I look at what Jesus did and what his purposes were and what he said, it seems pretty God's, God's pretty invested in drawing people to himself and building a community that embodies Jesus Christ. And so we've got to be involved in that too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray you help us. I'm sure there's a ton of questions revolving in every single one of our heads right now. Maybe the questions are, what was that about? Uh, maybe those questions are, how does that apply to me? Uh, maybe that questions, those questions about, you know, kind of what about this and what about that? Uh, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to every single one of us. Our lives look different. We uh, find ourselves in different situations from, you know, even from the end of this service this morning until we gather again together next week. And so I pray you help us this week to value one another, Lord God, uh, to truly love one another, even in those moments when we disagree with one another. And there's times when we strongly disagree with one another. Help us not to stop caring for one another. Help us not to treat each other different. Help us not to see each other as lesser or to snub one another, Lord God. Help us not just to kind of push people out and build our own little clique, but help us to continue to seek to be this beautiful community that you've called into being called the body of Jesus Christ. Help us to be church, because we can't do it without you, 
And we can't do it from that one spirit that you gave us all to drink. And so we may drink, may we drink deeply of your Holy Spirit. May we be led by your Holy Spirit. May we be strengthened by your Holy Spirit. May we be in those times when we want to maybe snap at people, kind of pulled in and reined back by your Holy Spirit. And may we be gracious and led to that uh, gracious approach to one another by your Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.